0: podcast, volume one, the introduction. Um, this, uh, episode, if you will, or this introduction is about who I am and what the intent is with this podcast. So for those of you that are completely unfamiliar that are tuning in here, my name is Matt Barber. I'm an orthopedic surgeon specializing in joint replacement of the knee and hip, um, All of us train in uh, all aspects of orthopedic surgery during residency. Most folks at this point do fellowships afterwards to specialize in a particular discipline. That's what I did. And now uh, I am a practicing surgeon for the last 12 years uh, doing knee replacement and hip replacement. And I am obsessed with all aspects of those two things. And what do we do and how do we get better? And... The idea behind this podcast is what would happen if we were real, uh, if we if we just told the truth, if we talked about things as I see them and uh, shed some light for patients and for families and for surgeons and for people in the industry. And we want to keep it real. Now, I certainly do not have a monopoly on the truth. Uh, you will have uh, very bright and reasonable people who will, will disagree with me but what if we got some information out about some of these topics and we, we talked about things because we certainly uh, hear a lot of myths about care. We have a lot of promotion, a lot of marketing around devices, around surgeries, uh, around something that is uh, very personal and very important to people. And so how much can we uh, cut through that clutter or at least give people, sources of information and if, if I'm not a great source if I can point them to other places where they can get more real information and real truth. Uh I feel like we would have really moved the needle for some people if we could do that. And we're just going to talk about things that are interesting to me. Uh technologies in orthopedics, uh in joint replacement. This has been exploding in the last few years. Um, additives manufacturing, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, 3D printing, uh, technologies that are, that are based around MRIs and CT scans and three-dimensional imaging, accelerated rehab protocols, outpatient surgery, things that are, that are hot topics that we can give people some context on and help them learn about. That's really the intent here is to, to keep it real. We're going to talk to a lot of exciting guests, I think, uh, we're going to talk with surgeons that are thought leaders, uh, around the country and around the world that are really on the, the leading edge of what they do, that have strong opinions about things and about how things should be, and will bring us unique ideas. We, uh, hope to talk to some patients, to people that have, have been on, on the receiving end of, of surgeries and what are we doing well, and what are we not doing well, and how do we get better? We want to talk to people involved in the delivery of healthcare. how that looks as a, as a system. Again, where are we falling down? Uh, I think people have a lot of sense that that can be better, and we want to talk about what those ideas are and what that might look like. We can delve into history of orthopedics, of orthopedic surgery, of joint replacement. That's uh, a topic near and dear to me because I, I have to know where we've come from and what's been tried. And that gives us insight about where we're going. Uh, And so things that are interesting to me, I hope will be interesting to other people. We can talk about hot topics in orthopedic surgery. We can try to educate and inform. In terms of history, we certainly stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of orthopedic care, and orthopedic surgery, uh, going back really uh, over a century. But Certainly in joint replacement circles, things really took off in the 1960s with uh, Dr. John Charnley and the advent of hip replacement, uh, soon followed by knee replacement surgery and the evolving technologies that we've seen over the last several decades. We've had wonderful surgeons over the last few decades who have trained many of us and taught us and and given us a knowledge base to work from to try to grow and get better in what we do and we want to honor that history and we want to incorporate that into what we're doing and into how we think about the future. So I'm hopeful that you will join us in this journey, set aside some time and and be part of this with us and help us to uh, keep it real in orthopedics here at the Ortho Real Podcast. Uh, Here's some snippets of what's to come. Yeah, and I I think that sort of the overarching concepts you're speaking to are exactly what you said before, which is that happy knee is one that extends and flexes easily, uh, but has a great deal of stability. Uh, it's, it's yeah, that, that yeah, goal yeah, yeah. of, of ligament isometry. And I, I really, you know, honestly, I believe that, that whether it's custom implants or robotics or, or, or kinematic alignment or, or really any of these things are driven by, by that stability, by by the the ligament Correct. isometry, where we're not having condylar lift off, where we have very smooth uh, contact throughout that range of motion, and it's not it's not uh, tensioning the soft tissues in an aberrant way when when people walk or stair climb or things like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I think we're trying to be uh, the least wrong, if you will, um, as far as yeah, exactly.
2: I would agree with that.
0: Yeah. So uh, great thoughts on that, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you've, you've had some, uh, some publications about knee replacement and hip replacement in 10 pills or less, um, opioid-sparing surgery. Um, direct this to, to patients and to the medical community and everybody. Um, why would we want to do that, and tell me about that.
2: Well, if you're an employer or a, a commercial payer or CMS, there's data out there. I think it's Casterlight, like, uh, CSD, CHP, showing that the typical commercial payer uh, patient uh, costs them about ten thousand dollars a year. So you know, if their if their premium is seventeen thousand for the year, you know they're making a seven thousand dollar profit on that on that person that they can then use to an outlier, right? where if you look, if you're an opioid-addicted patient, you cost 19000 dollars so almost double the cost. And now you lose money on that patient. But first of all, opioid addiction has a direct cost to insurers and uh, to employers, um, uh, as well as to you know, that, fam- that personal family that now has to deal with this problem and you know, and uh, whether or not that person loses a job ultimately. You know, so opioid addiction has... It's for real, so it, I, I realize that the pandemic has has uh, killed any any press on this, but you know it is a real problem in every community in the country. Do you agree?
0: I think you're exactly right, and the internet and these social media platforms that we have available have really democratized a lot of information and let some of these stories get out there, and some of this information that, as you said, would have been siloed within particular companies or kind of locked down is, is getting out there to people that are that are passionate and that are interested sure. like me that'll you know sit in their car and listen to another surgeon talk about whatever for really as long as they will. Right. So that's been been awesome. Uh what else? What do what do you see as the future in orthopedics and joint replacement in,
1: in podcasting? Any of it? I think uh the digital platform it's going to continue uh, to expand in terms of its importance, especially with COVID. I think some of the companies uh, may have shut down the their social media policies a little early because uh, now this platform is becoming more and more critical. And as, as long as you're exhibiting some common sense, I think you should be allowed to to share whatever you need to share on social media. Uh, there's been a deafening silence on. on some of that with a lot of the companies changing how their reps could communicate on social media. And I think that's um, that has not been a positive thing because there's a lot of people's voices that I, I would like to hear. So despite that, I feel like the medium is going forward. Uh, LinkedIn has is, is really been transforming into a, an amazing platform. Uh, surgeons are taking advantage of. Uh, reps are taken advantage of. And just, just to, to get that information out. And then the podcasting is just continuing to grow. I'm seeing more and more people coming on board. Uh, I've actually thought about doing a doc social course on the equipment side and the audacity side and, and little tricks that I've learned on how to get the best sound and questions and all that. And uh, I think a rising tide floats all ships. I, I, I think more people out there doing it, more people being engaged. It's just a good thing for the entire medium. So,
0: Dr. Whiteside, um, I think as we look back to the 19th century, there were a lot of um, attempts at some, some various interposition arthroplasties. Uh, in the early 20th century, the Jude brothers, uh, Dr. Smith-Peterson, some others uh, did some ceramic and, and glass and bakelite type uh ephemeral head, hemiarthroplasties, but in the modern era, I I think at least of of maybe 1950s and onward where we really started to get uh, some of the predecessors of our more modern implants in the knee and hip. Uh, I think about uh, Austin Moore for hip, uh, Thompson for hip, um, and then some of the early knee designs. What can you tell us about the history of, of these joint replacement implants or where, where you see it kind of starting for hip and knee in a more modern context?
2: Well, you, you know, I think most people, um, point to John Charnley's uh, efforts to cement the hip in uh, as the, the, so the beginning of the modern era of arthroplasty, but, you know, I'll tell you something. Um, I, I think, I think uh, the cemented total hip was a huge misstep. Uh, the, the Ling hip and uh McKee-Prar and 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 others were making some real headway with cementless fixation of metal to bone with bone ingrowth back in the 1950s and 60s, and cement sort of blew all that away. It, uh, for well, one thing, it was a huge marketing effort, and Char, John Charnley was a, the, one of the best marketers in the history of medicine. Uh, people found it very easy to get on board with that guy, and he had the entire uh, British Isles behind this effort, too. You know, most people don't realize what an effort it was to get him to Ridington, to get him up and rolling, and all of the facilities in place to, uh, to to generate this cemented hip move, movement, and then of course it went directly into cemented total knee, and it
0: took a decade to get us to get away from from cemented total hip. In hearing about your practice, I mean that that is exactly what comes to mind: is this model of direct primary care, which. I don't know if, if the audience is entirely familiar with that, but it's sort of a an offshoot, if you will, of that, that concierge-type care, uh, particularly in primary care where somebody pays basically a retainer amount to a, a physician and they take mm-hmm. care of them uh, for the year uh, on a cash basis. And obviously, an, an internist armed with a lot of knowledge and, and a few good lab studies can take care of a ton of stuff for a patient on a a pretty low cost basis. I've always been intrigued with this idea of how this translates to really not just orthopedics, but anything surgical, you know, where you've got hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers and things involved and sometimes implants. And did you, I mean, was there anybody else doing anything similar or any kind of model you went from, or did you just jump in this thing?
3: No, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the only models I had were based on primary care. So there wasn't any orthopedic model. I mean, I had to figure out everything from, you know, from scratch. Like, what does this look like for the specialty? And just to kind of, you know, I think something that is, as I find confusing is good to clear up is the difference between, so you're right, direct primary care doctors, the basic idea is a patient says, hey, let me pay you $100 a month or whatever it is. And the direct primary care doctor says, that's great. I don't take any insurance. Um, You can come see me as much as you want. You can get labs at cost. You can get medications at cost. They have a lower patient panel. They can call and text their doctor. To me, I think it's better uh, medical care. And uh, usually the doctor is much happier, right? They're not dealing with insurance or hospitals or anything. And the patient is too. So that's kind of your direct primary care world. And that's been around since probably 2010. And that's been expanding. Um, Concierge medicine, which kind of people conflate the two, is really when you have an insurance-based practice. And then you build a patient on top of that, meaning that you bill them for insurance, and you say, "Hey, if you want extra access to me, it's you know thousand dollars a year or 2000 thousand." They tend to be more expensive, but it's a subtlety there. And you know when you talk about concierge, you think of like, you know, like high society type stuff. And direct primary care, there's a lot of you know, small business owners or people that don't have insurance, and it ends up being a really excellent option for them to get high quality medical care.